18 athletes get a hero's welcome in a foreign country. Now those same athletes come back to America and their own countrymen barely accept them, all because of the color of their skin. Olympic Pride American Prejudice delves into the historic events surrounding the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin as told by writer and director Deborah Riley Draper, our special guest on today's episode of BHL's Conversations. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Live Conversations. So we're playing Maxwell, a woman's work, or this woman's work. Deborah chose this song, guys. I did choose this song. <laughs> um, you know, it, it reminded me of Tidy Pickett and Louise Stokes, the first two African-American women to ever represent the United States in the Olympics. Yeah. And they worked really hard, and their work ethic is uncomparable, yet their stories faded into obscurity. So I thought it was really important and compelling and poignant to have this song play as we begin this discussion mm -hmm. about 18 stories that are important and powerful and that we need to remember and understand their experience. Guys, we're kicking out the afternoon on such a serious note. I hope you're ready for this conversation. It's heavy, it's important, it's a must watch. I'm Erica Renee Davis. You are watching BHL Conversations. Um, you can find me on Snapchat, Periscope, Twitter, and on Instagram at Erica Renee D. And our beautiful, intelligent, brilliant writer, director, guest who has graced us with her presence today, Deborah Riley Draper. Don't forget the Riley. <laughs> Don't Absolutely. Forget the Riley. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here. I look forward to the conversation. And it's a heavy story, but you know what? It's a fun story. It's a story we can get behind. It's a patriotic. It's um, sports. It's sports. It's we, sports history. Sports. It's yeah. Olympic sports, too. It's, Olympic. Yeah. And it's, it's the best of the best athletes from 1936. It is. And before we get into our conversation, Deborah, can you tell everyone out there where they can find you on uh, yes, social media? Please follow us on Twitter at Olympics36, on Instagram at 1936OlympicsMovie, and of course on Facebook at 1936OlympicsMovie. So as I said in the opening, Olympic Pride American Prejudice is a being considered a documentary or is it being considered a feature? Kind of explain what this is being it's considered. It's a feature documentary. We're in the documentary competition at the L.A. Film Festival. So we are competing against the other fine folks who... Uh, they're telling stories like we are that are about the real American experience and experiences around the globe. And this story is about 18 African Americans who defy Jim Crow and they defy Hitler to go on and win hearts and medals in the middle of Nazi Germany mm. during the 1936 Olympics. So it's compelling. It is compelling. And what's also compelling, Deborah, is that we talked about off air how when we think about the Olympics in 1936, we think about Jesse Owens, Jesse Owens, like even the movie came out about a month and a half ago, Run, the Jesse Owens, that's all we talk about. Why is it that we have separated Jesse Owens from that conversation and excluded the other 17 athletes who are also African-American whose impact should have been as great as his was? You know what? That is an exceptional question and very intuitive because it was the propaganda that was happening in the United States. Most people remember the German propaganda, mm -hmm. but there was American propaganda as well. So from the American side, from the political standpoint, it was easier to lift one African-American up and say, this African-American against Hitler. So that gives you this wonderful patriotic story. But to talk about 18 African-Americans, it means that we really needed to reframe that conversation. That means we would have to examine how we actually treat African-Americans mm. if we were to say we had 18 exceptional 
college students going over to represent this country. When they come home, they can't vote, they can't buy a house in the neighborhood. So we really don't want to have that conversation. And politicians weren't ready to have that conversation. So the stories of those 17 conveniently faded into obscurity. I mean, because even as much of a history buff I consider myself to be, I don't think I even realized that there were that many other athletes who black athletes, rather, who accompanied um, Jesse Owens on this on this journey. For my entire life, I thought he was the only one on the 1936 team. And after doing research, we discovered 17 others, including the two women that I mentioned at the beginning of the interview. It's a really powerful story, because these were kids. Think about it. They were on a boat for 10 days, headed to Nazi Germany to represent America, where they were second-class citizens. And then when they get to Berlin, a few interesting things happened. They were able to get on the bus and sit in the front. Mm -hmm. They were able to go into restaurants and sit down and be served. Yeah. So this this really changed their perspective. And when they came home, while their stories may not have been known, you know the impact. Because Mac Robinson was on that 1936 team. Jackie Robinson's brother. Jackie Robinson, 10 years after Mac mm. faces Hitler breaks the color barrier in baseball. Yeah. So you know those two brothers had a lot to talk about they, at home. They certainly do. And yes. you have a lot to talk about, obviously, because you have a knack for history and for telling the historical, to contextual um, information of stories that are very important to not only past generations, but to our present generation. Thank what, you. Yeah, and, and, and you, tell, you tell them so beautifully. Thank you very so much. So impressive. What attracted you, I mean, because obviously you're super young, what attracted you to this story from the 1930s that made you go all in and, you know, search for crowdfunding and put yourself completely out there as a writer, as a director, as an artist. Well, you know what it was? I felt that, you know, we need to hear different voices mm -hmm. and we need to see the different stories that make up African-American history, American history, and world history. And these are 18 people coming out of the Depression that were able to attend Division I schools. They were at Marquette, Ohio State. I was fascinated that the grandchildren of slaves mm. would be able to go to Germany and represent America, and then we lose sight of this story. Um, it disappears. And I thought, wow, um, at the time um, I was researching this story, Ferguson happened. Mm. And I thought, wow, what would happen if these 18 young people were able to talk to young people today and they were able to share stories and create a pathway for the future so that this next generation can understand what it feels like to break down stereotypes, what it feels like to kick in doors and do it in a way that's really smart, really graceful, in a way that they can't take it from you. These stories may be lost, but their impact lives forever. It and I'm going to make sure that the story lives forever, too. So walk us through the the moment that you knew Deborah the moment because you know as an artist like you see you hear a melody or you see a performance and you become immediately inspired and as a writer and director I'm assuming that you had that same kind of aha moment I'm in love with this when you knew that this story was one that you had to tell walk me through that process I was looking at archival footage and I was watching Archie Williams win his gold medal in the 400 meter in 1936. And the announcer said, he's gaining on him. That Negro is dangerous. He's a Black Panther. He's a supernova. Mm. I was like, whoa, this is the story. Mm. I have to tell this story. Because there, the dynamics and the layers and the complications and the irony and the paradox of just the way the announcer mm -hmm. called the race, I was bought in, mm. hook, line, and sinker. What is the process like of creating a feature documentary? Because, you know, with movies, we kind of know, we see the behind the scenes. 
But when you're curating such old information, trying to get firsthand accounts, whether it's from the actual Olympians or from their grandchildren, that's a very meticulous job. So what is that process? Like, how did you thread and weave this story together to make it what it is that we're, we're going to actually see this weekend? I'm wonderful. I think of it as like forensic investigation. So. Um, we start with, we think there are 18 people. We don't quite know their names. We had this photograph where we could see the faces. So then it's this process of investigation, finding out who they are. And of course, the records for African Americans during that time, everyone's last name was Johnson. <laughs> and um, so figuring out the accurate names, then finding the families, finding their school records, finding their university records, and going over to Germany where the records were very intact because mm. the Germans were very meticulous about the record keeping and weaving the stories from both sides because we wanted to see what the Germans um, take on it was and what the American take and then what the African American take. So we were able to look at newspapers from the Chicago Defender, mm. uh, the Baltimore African American, because we're very fortunate in that those newspapers sent reporters like yourself, mm -hmm. intrepid reporters across the pond to go to Germany and report on what was happening for the black community because they knew the mainstream newspapers may not tell the full story. So a lot of those papers aren't in existence, but I was able to find their archives and really understand what really happened and how much people around the world loved those athletes. Mm. People were in love with them. Louise Stokes was the most photographed woman at the 1936 Olympics. And what was her what was her event? She was the on the relay team. Okay. Four by one. Four by one hundred. Did you run track? I did run track. Me too. But you know I wasn't that fast. Okay, what did you run? I went I was a hundred. Okay. As a sprinter, I just couldn't get out the blocks. <laughs> Well, yeah. see, so you were already inspired because you were an athlete well, yourself. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm an athlete. My husband is an athlete. You know, practically everyone on our production team is an athlete. So we love sports in general. And we love an opportunity to tell a sports story that's not been told. Mm -hmm. And when that sports story has black women mm -hmm. like us, yeah, you know, smart, cute, black women who love fashion because they were like that in 36 as well. I knew this would be good, and I knew it was important, too, because um, right now there's lots of talks about what types of stories should be African-American stories mm. and what we, sh what we consider African-American stories. And this is one that's African-American, it's Jewish-American, it's German-American, it's American, it's global. But the focus of it are people of color mm -hmm. and how they brought a positive impact to our country. Because if they had not done this in 36, when would integration in sports yeah. take place? Yeah. Would it have been the 40s, the 50s, the 80s? We don't know. When, when they when they realized what they were missing out on. <laughs> well, well, that's <laughs> but, but, but exactly when? the yeah. truth. Yeah. Because <laughs> these guys were integrating college teams. Yeah. And those coaches took notice. So America and politicians may not have taken notice, but coaches took notice. So a little bit more recruiting, a little bit more recruiting, a little bit more recruiting, and then the next thing you know. Your whole team is black. The whole team is black. <laughs> <laughs> Black Hollywood Live, and keep it real here. <laughs> now, the underlying theme, I guess the overarching theme is these athletes are second-class citizens in America, but in Germany they were celebrated. Absolutely. In your research and in producing this film, tell me, talk about some of the huge discrepancies between how fans and spectators treated these athletes and then how they were treated by Americans when they got back. Well, if you look at the journals and the books and the magazines, even the scrapbooks at the homes of older Germans, mm -hmm. and in the film you'll see this German man walks to our set, he flips open his autograph book, and he has the autographs of the black athletes mm -hmm. right alongside the white athletes. They respected their game. They respected that these were elite athletes. They were amazing. They cheered 
So when you look at the archival footage, Germans, including mm -hmm. SS officers, are standing up cheering for Archie, cheering for Ralph, cheering for Jesse, cheering for Jimmy. They love these athletes. So mm -hmm. there's the German Nazi politics, and then there's the human side of people, mm -hmm. and the German people and the other people from around the world that were in the audience for the moments that those competitions were happening in the moments that these athletes were on the medal stand, suspension happened mm. and people became human and they connected on an emotional and on a human level. Mm. You know, so while the swastikas were flying and the how Hitlers were hanging overhead, the people yeah. remained people. Even if it was for 40 seconds or two minutes, but the people also invited them to dinner. Yeah. They went to a ton of parties. Yeah. They had a ton of fun. That level of experience, that freedom, that access, mm -hmm. that recognition was not what they received when they went home. What happened when they came home, per your research? Um, when they came home, they had this great party in New York. It was a ticker tape parade, and all of them had to go through the service entrance to get to the party that was thrown for them. Mm. And then, of course, a lot of their white teammates went on to have jobs being Tarzan and in the movies. Mm -hmm. These guys went to work. Mm. They, they, they had to become doctors, Tuskegee Airmen, teachers. Which is not a bad job. It's not <laughs> no, a bad none, job. None of these are anything to shake a stick at. And, yes. And, and I say that because <laughs> that's how smart they were. Mm -hmm. They were great athletes, and they were great men and women who impacted on the field and off the and field. Off the field, yeah. I, Ralph Metcalf became a congressman. He co-wrote the Black History Month resolution. Mm. So they went to do great things. And you have to think about the experience to face Hitler. When you have that experience, you're able to do anything. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it changed their lives. Um, let me ask you this. Now, again, back to Jesse Owens, because that's all, that's all we ever talk about. But we're going to get out of that conversation yeah. now with Olympic Pride American Prejudice. You have introduced us to the other athletes whose impact was just as important as Jesse's. Absolutely. But with Jesse Owens, they, they talks, we've talked, we've learned so much in history about how Jesse, you know, faced the conflict of whether or not I should go. You know, this is, you know, this is a black-white thing. Thinking about the kinds of things that we go through now as black Americans yeah. or as not just black Americans, ethnic people in general, yeah. the things like the, I don't know, for example, the Clippers, when Donald Sterling had his whole thing a few years ago and everyone was saying, well, the Clippers should boycott, they should not play, and LeBron like kind of threatened to not play. Do you think that those athletes, not considering what we know happened, but do you think that those athletes should have considered boycotting the Olympics because their own country wasn't, they weren't, we weren't even treating them like citizens? Well, you know, it was a great debate in the black community. Should we go? Should we not go? The NAACP said don't go. The Chicago Defender, the black newspaper said go. The athletes wanted to go. Mm -hmm. They wanted to demonstrate that they were not only human, they were exceptional. Do you support that decision, though? I support the decision. Okay. If they didn't have that decision, we wouldn't be sitting here okay. today because their impact in integration impacted sports and entertainment, which impacts you and I. It does. <laughs> so yeah. they, they began to integrate different places in the media. Mm -hmm. So that created a pathway for the rest of us to integrate and continue to push those same places. Now, were you able to get any firsthand accounts from any of the athletes without giving too much away? Because you guys have to see they the have film. To watch the you film. have to watch the film. They have to see it. World premiere is this Saturday at 1 o'clock, by the way, Culver City at the Culver City Arclight. Just want to let you guys know. Yes. Plug, we'll plug it again later. But world premiere, Saturday at 1 o'clock, Culver City Arclight. But Give us a little bit. Give us a little teaser about who you talked to. Any um, of the living athletes from 1936. Well, the 1936 athletes all passed away. Okay. But we found some archival 
interviews mm-hmm. from Jesse Owens, okay. Archie Williams, and James Louvell, mm-hmm. and Ralph Metcalf's diary. Oh, So we were able to get real, true insight of what that experience in Nazi Germany from the mind of a black teenager in the 30s, what that was like. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was incredible. Any firsthand accounts from grandchildren or great-grands? Absolutely. We talked to... Or I guess uh, not firsthand. Well, secondhand, <laughs> secondhand accounts, accounts. But they were able to say what it felt like when they walked into the stadium and saw all the swastikas hanging, and they thought they were going to die for a split second. And then they realized they weren't going to die. They realized they got to compete, and mm. it was awesome. Mm-mm-mm. The biggest challenge for you, creating this Finding masterpiece. archival material, yeah. locating African-American footage from 80 years ago. Yeah. Who was taking pictures of black folks 80 years ago? And finding those people, and finding the people who are willing to stand up and write those stories 80 years Where'd ago. Where'd you find them? Germany. All in Germany? <laughs> well, Germany, France, Italy, and the United States. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you have an affinity for history because, again, you, you told the story of the Versailles 73. I did. You're, you're from Georgia originally. I am. She's, she's from We G- share that. We share that. We're both from Georgia. Yes. We're both from South, well, Savannah, Georgia. Is that South Georgia to That's you? That's South Georgia. We have, our, our hometowns have the same area code, 912. Yes, they do. 912, girl. We're 912. <laughs> 912. Absolutely. Do you, do you think that growing up in South Georgia, <laughs> and just be completely honest. Yes. Growing up in South Georgia in the 80s and the 90s, did that have an effect on how, let me rephrase that, how did growing up in South Georgia in the 80s and the 90s affect how you viewed and perceived race and race relations? You know, that that's a fantastic question because growing up in South Georgia completely affected the way I told this story, the way I told Versailles 73, and the way I'll tell every story from now until I die. Because when when you actually see and experience the way people have um, unconscious bias mm-hmm. based on race, based on gender, race based on religion, you can't separate that from yourself as an artist. It infiltrates your work, mm-hmm. um, and it also beca- uh, makes you very conscious of how you tell a story. And there's an authenticity to it. There's also a sensitivity to it, and there's a deliberate. For me, a deliberate desire to show and tell the voices and the faces of people who don't get a chance to speak. Mm. But you know, in South Georgia, we don't always get an opportunity to talk. Yeah, this is true. You know, the, that, that avenue for creativity and expression isn't always there because you don't have access to the media. Mm-hmm. So being able to create a platform for people to understand how diverse we are as African Americans and what our great contributions are. It's really important to me. My mom was a school teacher. Mm-hmm. She taught school for over 40 years. So she always loved entertainment as a way to educate. And so she always used film in her classroom to kind of bring the story home. So, and she was like, one day you're going to be a t- school teacher. And I was like, that's never going to happen. Like, no, mom. <laughs> but when you create stories, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, you educate people and you change their perception and you create the opportunity to have conversations. So hopefully when people watch this film, we'll have a conversation about race and an honest one. We'll have a conversation about intolerance and an honest one. And we'll have a conversation about what we want our country to look like Mm -hmm. and what we would want our country to look like 80 years from now. So we know what it looked like in 1936, 80 years ago. Yeah. Do we want to talk about what we want it to look like 80 years from now and what we're willing to do to make it better 80 years from now than it is right now? Mm. Super heavy. Super important, but... We have we have a little break now. We're gonna have some fun. Some, Yay! Have some Can fun. we play some games? We're gonna play a game. All right, I love games. The first game is called Would You Rather. Ooh, would I rather? Would you rather? You have to be completely candid, off cuff. First thing that comes to your mind. Ooh. Okay. 
How about and, and the debate team in college? Let's go. Perfect. Florida State, Florida Seminole State right Seminoles. here. Okay. That's right. Would you rather be called African-American or black, and why? Um, I'd actually rather be called both. Mm. You know, that th- wasn't an option, though. But <laughs> that wasn't an option. You, you know, okay, I, first foul of the game. <laughs> but go ahead. I, um, I, w- when we're talking about race mm-hmm. and we're talking about um, segments of audiences, then I want to be called African-American. Okay. Um, be, because that is, as an audience segment from a marketing perspective, that's where I fall. Gotcha. So I'm okay with that. Okay. But when we're talking about me as an, a, a person, I'm fine being called a black woman, and I prefer for it to say strong black woman. Strong black woman. Yes. So I'm if, okay with that. You're, and, and listen, I'm, I'm good with that, too, but I want to know, so if a random white person in Whole Foods comes up to you, would you want them to say... <laughs> Would you want them to say, oh, that black woman in the orange dress? Or would you want them to say the African-American woman in the orange dress? I need them to say the African-American woman in the (laughs) orange dress. (laughs) Okay. I just had to get some clarification here. I can say. Okay. You can say. The black woman in the orange dress. Oh. Mm -hmm. Okay. I need them to be slightly more formal since we're not acquainted. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's fair. Okay. (laughs) Moving on to the second question, would you rather? Do you listen to hip-hop music? I do. Who's your favorite artist? Of all time? Well of, well, of all time or currently. Okay, well, you know, my favorite hip-hop artist, ooh, that's a toss-up between Pac and Jay-Z. I'm not sure. Okay, it doesn't matter. This is perfect. This is a perfect segue <laughs> to the question. So, you listen to Pac, you listen to Jay-Z. Would you rather a hip-hop artist completely get rid of the N-word, or would you rather it just become a part of everyone's colloquialisms? Okay, I need the word removed because I think we can be a whole lot more creative. Okay. Um, having spent a lot of time researching history and understanding the origins of words mm-hmm. and the power of words and how words were used to actually categorize people in a negative way and words were used to sell people, mm-hmm. I'm really not interested in hearing it. So do you feel conflicted when you, like, you're bobbing your head at Tupac or to Jay-Z and then they say the N-word and you're buying that music? Um, I don't buy the music. <laughs> <laughs> but but I listen freely. I listen freely. <laughs> um, no, no, I I understand these guys as artists and, okay. and and how they're using it. So I can't tell them as artists how not to communicate their art. Okay. Um, I'm gonna enjoy their art too, but I don't necessarily respect the choice to use the word. Okay, gotcha. Okay. What she's from South Georgia, so this is this question is coming from our South Georgia origins, not from. We're this black game people. is hard. Is it hard? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's fun, though. It's, it's fun. total fun. <laughs> I think it's fun anyway. <laughs> Would you rather eat Popeye's chicken for a week or Church's chicken for a week? Neither. Neither! But you... Oh, okay, what would... Okay, if you had to pick a fried chicken chain. If I had to pick fried chicken, <laughs> it's going to be my aunt's chicken from Statesboro, Georgia. I'm not going to eat Church's chicken. <laughs> Sorry, ne- Church's. You never had Church's chicken before? I've had it before, maybe 25 years ago. You don't like it? Not a no. I can't. Popeyes, no. I'll eat Popeyes chicken. Okay, but over all fried chicken is your aunt's fried chicken. Absolutely, there's no question. Okay, okay, okay. One more. Would you rather? And then we'll get back into some serious stuff, and then we'll go back into a game before we leave again. Oh, I love the games. Okay, perfect. Would you rather, as a writer, yep. director, would you rather work with Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> <laughs> or would you rather work with George Clooney? George Clooney. Why? Um, I think George Clooney is a great um, philanthropist. Mm-hmm. I love George Clooney as a writer, as a director, as a producer. I, I have 
I love The Descendants. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. So without a doubt, I picked George Clooney. That was easy. Plus, he was on The Facts of Life with Judy. Oh, The Facts of Life. I forgot. Yeah. I really forgot that he was on The yeah. Facts of Life. I don't really remember, but. <laughs> yes, he was on The Facts of Life. Okay. Yeah. That, you did well at that game. Thank you. That was, that was good. Now, moving on to some more serious. Back to serious. Back to serious, but not, not too serious. Okay. Um, many, since we're on sports, obviously, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, Saturday, 1 o'clock. Um, Arclight Cinema. Arclight Cinema, Culver City. Yeah. Many social commentators compare today's NFL draft to modern-day slavery. You think about all the things that these athletes went through in the 30s, all the things that we still go through today. Do you agree with that theory that today's drafts and today's combines are reminiscent of the slave trade? First, I have to tell you, I love how you have so much fun, then you come back with the hardest hitting <laughs> question that you could possibly come back with. So, yay, thank you for that. Um, wow, tough journalist here. Um, that, that question is really complicated. Okay. Um, because there are a lot of similarities when you stand people up and parade them around and allow people to choose based on physicality and based on their likelihood to beat another person at a particular thing, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So so there are similarities there. I think what um, is the difference is, A, these guys are getting paid. Slaves worked for free. Mm -hmm. um, slaves didn't have the option to tell their agent, I, you know what, I'm done with this contract. I want to be a free agent. I want to go to another team. So there are some things that slaves didn't have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I think when, if you're talking about the economics of slavery and the economics of sports, then you have what could be considered um, a dotted line in history from the plantation mm. to the stadium. Mm. Okay. But do you still watch football, though? Girl, I love sports. Come on. <laughs> Come on. But, 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 but let's be honest. There's yeah. an opportunity for these athletes to earn a tremendous amount of money um, as athletes and also endorsements. Mm -hmm. And you have these great, tremendous stories like Magic Johnson, who goes on to become an incredible businessman. So these are wonderful stepping stones that our athletes have that slaves didn't have. Exactly. Slaves had to run away to get an opportunity. They did. These guys are being invited and drafted into an opportunity, and they have the opportunity to make the most out and of that. And build lives for their and families, which their slaves families, weren't really given that opportunity. slaves' lives were pulled apart. Mm -hmm. So these guys can actually bring their communities and their families together. So okay. I think that's beautiful and wonderful. And I think the opportunity for them to create more business out of the business of sports is there. Oh, yeah. Okay. I like that. A&E this week, Roots, almost 40 years. 40 years. Almost 40 years from um, the original premiere of Alex Haley's Roots. Filmed but in Savannah. Fil was it all filmed in Savannah? Part of it was filmed in Savannah. What? Yes. I don't think I got another fun fact. I did another not know. Another fun fact. That's what I'm here for, fun facts. Black history all year round. <laughs> exactly. Appreciate that. Appreciate that, Deborah Riley Draper. Snoop Dogg says... Why does everything happen? Why does every <laughs> when, when you when you quote when you start off quoting Snoop Dogg, you know it's gonna be either a farce or maybe we can make something out of it. We can. Okay, Snoop Dogg is irritated, and he's basically saying that why do we have to keep telling these slave stories? Now he didn't articulate it as eloquently as let's say a Stacey Dash might have, or let's just say just generally people in the entertainment industry, black people in the entertainment industry, often feel that. Every time we get major press, it's because we're the help, or it's because we're telling the st the struggle of the, the 17, 18 athletes in the you know during not Nazi Germany. As a writer, as a director, 
as a storyteller, what are your thoughts of how black people express that sentiment? Uh, if it's not the struggle story, we don't get a story. Well, you know what? I'm hoping everyone will watch Olympic Pride American Prejudice because it's actually a victorious story. Mm -hmm. It's a story of triumph because these guys face some incredible odds. But here's the thing. They were at Marquette. They mm. were at Berkeley, they were at UCLA, they were at Ohio State, they were in high school. So many of them were on the dean's list. Mm -hmm. So they didn't struggle academically. They actually were quite superior students. So this story, what we like about it is it's not the typical African-American story about an athlete who didn't have the grades, that couldn't read, that was struggling to make it through high school to go on into the NBA to change his life. These guys were majoring in double majors, engineering and science, math. Um, so we like everyone to be able to tell the story, but I want to hear different stories. That's why I'm telling this one. Mm -hmm. That's why I told a story about fashion at the Palace of Versailles where Marie Antoinette lived mm -hmm. um, in 1973. So we can go different places and hear different voices and see different perspectives. Slavery is a part of our history. Mm -hmm. We can't overlook that. But man, between slavery and 2016, there are 10 million stories. There so are. let's have the opportunity to tell some of those. And we can always tell the slavery story, but I also want to hear the story uh, of the black woman astronaut. I also want to hear the story of two black girls from South Georgia mm -hmm. that take L.A. by storm and open a, you know, a new talk show. Yeah. Franchise, you know, whatever that story. I like that story. I like that story too. <laughs> what, you know, whatever yeah. that story is, different voices from different places doing different things. We owe ourselves that opportunity to have the chance to hear it. We may not like it. We may always like the slave story, but let's test ourselves. Okay. To see if we like other types of stories. Okay. One more. One more question, along because sports, Olympics. Mark Spears from formerly of Yahoo Sports, now of ESPN's Undefeated, talked about how today, talked about today how there's 75% of athletes in the NBA are black, but there are one or two, one black owner, Michael Jordan, and um, besides Doc Rivers, I think there's one other team president in the NBA who's black. Do you think that the NBA should implement a Rooney rule to give more black executives opportunities to be the presidents to be the GMs to lead teams and not just be on the court. Well, you know what? I'm going to Or do you think it's do you, do you think it should be more meritocracy based? Or go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted. Oh no, I was going to say I'm going to tell you a little story before I answer that question. Um there are 18, 19, 36 Olympians. Mm -hmm. Fritz Pollard was one of those. Mm -hmm. He was a hurdler. His name is Fritz Pollard Jr. Fritz Pollard Sr. was the first African American NFL coach. 1921. Ooh. He went to Brown, his daddy went to Brown, and his daddy's daddy went to Brown. Wow. So this African-American man was the first coach. He also owned a talent agency. So he created this opportunity for black coaches to exist in the NFL, and later in life, he went to the NFL and almost mandated that they have it. That's how Tony Dungy and mm -hmm. Herb, Herman Edwards became coaches, mm -hmm. part of this program that Fritz Pollard, the 1936 Olympian, helped institute with the NFL. Mm. So I think we have to look at the player base, we have to look at the jobs, and figure out ways how we take these players and integrate them into the system in which they play for. It's going to be meritocracy-based. They're already the best athletes in the game. Yeah. So they've, they've earned that. The merit is there. Okay. The position is there. Now they just need the opportunity to compete fairly. Okay. And so that means looking at them and regarding them 
for potential jobs. They need the opportunity to be a candidate. They need to be trained to be a candidate. Mm-hmm. So part of the NFL training after the two-a-days should be some corporate two-a-days mm-hmm. where they learn how to be in the front office. Okay, I like that. Good. Quick quick game, and then we're going to wrap it up with some more very important information, Olympic Pride, American Prentice, Culver City, Arclight. <laughs> I like gotta, how you do it. Got to keep plugging it because we, we have to go support. Okay, we're going to play a game, fill in the blank game. Fill All right, blank. I'm ready. Yeah, you ready for yes, it? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, um, my very first fill in the blank question. When you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is? Check my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just email, Instagram, like what, what do you check? Just Email. Email, okay, yes. okay. When you go to sleep at night, you're normally thinking about? Sleep. Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I work hard. Tara. I want to sleep. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, we- <laughs> Had to make sure I had my, my, my right question. Um, you will you will become a full time LA citizen when? Ooh, if you win the twenty twenty four Olympics. Ooh, I will move here. You guys win. I'll live here. You're you're here. Yes. Also, if the, some studio decides to give me a four picture deal, I'll be here tomorrow. Okay. Okay. You can repeat. That. I, I will, and we'll, I will make sure we play this on loop. So just that, just that, <laughs> just part. that part. Just that just part. Just that part. Um, your dream job in the industry is? My dream job would be to be a studio head where I could actually elevate the presence of people of color mm-hmm. um, and people around the world who want the opportunity to tell different and unique stories and so that they wouldn't have to fight so hard for funding and fight so hard for access and fight so hard for training. I would um, create more programs that allow, because you look at lots of industries, every industry has a way in Mm -hmm. and figuring out what the right way in to make filmmaking and movies accessible to all people who wanted to make them and have the training to do it. And did you crowdfund all of this? We, we have an executive producer, okay. Dr. Amy Tiemann, and we crowdfunded as okay. well. Okay. And then Mike Draper was our first executive producer and the first person to cut a check. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, very last question for Phil in the Blank, then we'll wrap it up. Um, your biggest fear in life is... Oh my gosh, not being able to make all the movies and to um, not spend the rest of my life with my husband. No, My biggest fears. We got, we got super sentimental here. Aww. We did talk about Blair Underwood, who narrates the film. Right? Let's talk about Blair. Blair's awesome. Yeah. And smart, talented. And cute. And let me tell you, going somewhere <laughs> with Blair is the hardest thing in the world. We walk the red carpet, Aseel and I, we just kind of just move out the way and kind of let Blair and all of the all of the women just move down the carpet. He's so handsome. And is he is he tall in person? He's decently tall. Like what, like six one, five eleven? Six one, I think. <laughs> she thinks she knows for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's six one. I know for sure. Yeah. Um how did Blair become attached to this project? Um, you know, Blair saw the trailer. Mm. And he saw the trailer and hook, line, and sinker he was in. And he said, how can I be a part and how can I help you um, make sure that this film is seen by people around the world? He was like, I'm an African-American history buff. I'm a history buff. I don't know the story. And I know a whole lot about history. So that's how he became involved. He became the narrator. He became the executive producer. And he is a champion of this film. If you could change anything about the process of making this film, what would it be? I'd make it less expensive. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know. Or just put your P.O. box in the lower third and you can just accept checks. Well, you know what? We are a 501c3 fiscal sponsor. I did see so that. So people can log on to the Southern Documentary Fund and actually donate to this film. It's tax 
deductible. So if they want to support independent film and they want to support this film in particular, go to the Southern Documentary Fund page, go to our page, um, www.1936olympicsmovie.com, and donate five, ten dollars, whatever you want to donate, but that's how independent films are getting made. They're getting made by people mm -hmm. who want to see different movies, people who want to help make movies that their children should see, mm -hmm. that their children's children should see. And you know, we, we talk about the film in a heavy way, but what we're really talking about is 18 kids. 18 kids! Who get on a boat for ten days to go to Germany to run, jump faster than every other kid in the world. And it's all the escapades the tough ones and the easy ones and the fun ones that happens in between the time they decide they want to make that Olympic team to the time they return to America. And is that is that tone of the story with the, this story is just about 18 kids getting on a boat, going, you know, across the water to different countries, is that the tone of the story that will attract the 13-year-old Jewish kid or the 18-year-old, you know, white kid who knows really nothing about Jim Crow America and Nazi Germany. Well, they're going to learn about it when they watch this okay, film. Okay, okay. They're going to learn about it, but they're also going to learn about the human spirit. Mm -hmm. They're going to they're going to learn about what happens when teenagers, regardless of race, are hanging out for a long period mm. of time. Was there some drinking involved? Well, you know, there are a lot of things involved. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to you got to check out you the gotta film. You got to go. Culver mm -hmm. City, Arclight, 1 o'clock, Saturday is a world premiere. LA Film Festival started last night. Did you walk the red carpet last night? I the red carpet with Blair last night, ton of fun. Eva Longoria was amazing in Low Riders. That was the opening film. Um, so it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun meeting all the filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And the LA Film Festival is by, by far the best film festival I've ever been to. There's a focus on giving new and emerging filmmakers a place to show existing filmmakers, mm -hmm. existing A-listers like Eva Longoria. But the mix of films it's incredible. Mm. There's nothing like it I've ever seen. So I'm proud to be a part of it. What is your hope from this weekend showing of this, of your documentary? Um, our hope is that um, a distributor will come and help us distribute the film in theaters and help us put the film in SVOD and VOD mm -hmm. and that NBC Sports, ESPN, or HBO Sports will pick the film up and air it. Especially NBC Sports because Road to Rio. Road to Rio, this is the perfect place for it. Yeah. So, you know, a broadcaster, a theatrical partner, okay. and, and then a pay-on-demand partner. Okay. That's so what we're looking for. We'll, we'll take anything NBC Sports. You hear, you hear what we're saying to you. Yeah. I mean, it will be the perfect story. 1936, 2016, Road to Rio, NBC Sports Olympics. There you go. It's perfect. It's a match, right? It, it's a perfect match. Absolutely. The most fun thing, before I let you go, the most fun thing about this whole process for you? I'm going to tell you two funny things. Um, so we're in Nazi Germany, and we're interviewing a former Hitler youth. And I'm talking to him about the 1936 Olympics. I was like, tell me what you remember the most about being a Hitler youth. Um, and he starts to sing a song. And we have no idea what he's singing. And it's in German. Oh. And all of a sudden, the German officials start running. And they're like, tell him to stop. He's singing the Nazi National Socialist Like the Hell Hitler song with like the... Yeah. He was like, this is what we used to sing. So I don't speak German. I had no idea what he was singing. All of a sudden, the stadium folks are like, tell him to stop. He can't sing this song. And we're like, oh, my God. They're like, you'll have to stop this interview if he continues. That's so, super genuine. That's yeah. But you know, it's, he was 94 years old. It was a memory. Um, but yeah, they were like, no. Yeah, you're 94. Cut. You can say what it, I mean, you can be 94 German guy, 94 <laughs> year old black woman. If you're 94 years old, you can say whatever the, you want to say. And he was singing whatever he wanted to sing. You get a pass, sorry. Yeah, the, the other fun part was um, we went uh, to this huge German flea market while we were in Berlin, uh -huh. and all of us 
found these amazing cameras. I bought a camera from the 40s. Um, there, uh, an official Leica camera. How much? Which, it was 40 bucks. Oh, oh, it was $40. It was it from was, the 40s and, and it was $40. $40. Get out of here. And it was, Leica was the official sponsor of the 1936 <gasps> Olympics. Ooh. So it was like, oh my God, this camera. Um, so that was a fun moment. Um, talking to Isaiah Thomas mm. was an amazing moment. Um, you know, because Isaiah... You know, he broke it down for us. He was a 1980 Olympian, mm-hmm. so he got caught up in the boycott. Oh, he yeah. didn't get to be on the, team, on the team, and he never made the dream team. So his only accomplishment, right. he had a high school championship, a college championship, three rings in the NBA, and the Hall of Fame, but he was never an, an Olympian. Olympian. No Olympic. He was an Olympian in 1980, but no medal. But no medal. Because the boycott of Russia. That's funny that you say that because you just talked about all the things he accomplished. But then we say, but he was never an, a gold medal. So it's funny. It's he funny. says it. Oh, that's what he said. That's what he said. Oh, well, there you go. That's what he said. He was like, he kind of wanted to, you know, pull sweep <laughs> yeah. of everything. Sorry. Yeah, he missed out on that one. That's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Um, Deborah, tell everyone one more time where they can find you on social media and tell everyone again where they can see the film. Absolutely. Everyone, please join us at the L.A. Film Festival Saturday at 1.10 p.m. at the Arc Light in Culver City. And if you missed that screening, you can check out the Encore screening on Monday at 4 p.m. at the Arc Light Culver City. Okay. For more information, log on to the L.A. Film Festival so you can buy your tickets for any of those screenings. Or you can see us at 1936olympicsmovie.com. All of our social media is there, but follow us on Twitter at Olympics36. And donate, guys. You have, y'all. Like, the trailer is phenomenal. I'm going to get to see the film tomorrow night, I think. Yes. Yeah, tomorrow night. So, from what I've seen, from speaking to you, you're lovely, you're beautiful, Thank you're you. brilliant, you're smart. It's going to be amazing. And I'm honored to be in your presence. I'm Erica Renee Davis for BHL's Conversations. You can find me on Snapchat, Periscope, Twitter, and on Instagram at Erica Renee D. Guys, go support this film. It will be one that you don't want to miss. I promise. I don't lie. Thank Until you. Next time. <laughs> see ya. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Christian, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us, info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio. Instagram me, at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.